This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Navy wants to embrace digital engineering to help speed up its acquisition process and cut its long-term sustainment costs. To do that, it needs digital threads that span all the way from a new system's initial design through its eventual retirement. And to jumpstart that process, officials are considering ways to use digital engineering platforms defense contractors have already built to design their own systems. Federal News Network's Jared Serbu has the details. The Navy has already started building digital twins, virtual replicas of physical systems that can dramatically speed up the process of testing new innovations and simulating how they'll work in the real world. But as in other parts of DoD, the current thinking is that the biggest payoff will come when fully digital engineering processes can take into account the full life cycle of a weapon system, letting the military services make better decisions about total cost of ownership and long-term maintenance. After all, says Jay Stephanie, the Navy's acting acquisition chief, those long-term sustainment costs make up 70% of spending on an average weapon system. For an example, in an ideal world, a single digital model to be used for the program's requirements definition phase, then we use that same model for the 3D design, uh, and then it moves into the digital uh, production phase, where, and that same model, that same data, this uh, moves into digital production. We then use it for developmental testing. And ideally, we even use it for operational testing. Like obviously, we have worked with the OTD to make that happen. But why, why wouldn't we use the same models uh, for operational testing? Then operator training and main, maintainer training, again, should be the same single model thread, digital thread, and ultimately for lifecycle sustainment and modernization. We need to figure out how to turn that single thread for the lifecycle of a program into a reality. And one way to accelerate those changes may be to piggyback on the work the Navy's biggest vendors have already done to build digital engineering environments of their own. As of now, they're for internal corporate use only, for understandable intellectual property protection reasons. But Stephanie says big contractors have signaled at least an interest in collaboration. I get to see uh, pretty much every one of the major companies come in and tell, tell me, you know, we got this great digital uh, model. We've been doing it for years. It's awesome. And as for my very first question is, okay, when can we, when can we see that and work together with you, bring our warfare centers or our research folks in, um, the program offices in, and, 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 ha- and have a collaborative digital environment as opposed to a, here's my Northrop way or my Lockheed way or my Boeing way. I don't know that all the companies, all the OEMs have the environments, maybe that they brag about, but they have, they are going that way. But then the doubles and the details, right? And the contracts and the legal and the, the data rights and all those kind of things. So work to be done. But yes, that is my goal is to is not to reinvent the will. If if the OEM already has a model or they're developing a model, we should be able to be in the middle of that working with them in it. And we just need the right licenses, the right authorities. Stephanie says the Navy is in discussions with the House and Senate Armed Services Committees on how to craft legislative language that would give the military clearer authorities to make use of defense contractors' digital engineering environments. He says whatever those new authorities are would need to make clear that the government will protect any intellectual property associated with those data environments from possible exposure to competitors. Sometimes I think the Navy will come in and say, or the you know, Army or Air Force will come and say, hey, industry, we want all your data rights. We want, we want to take ownership of your, of your data environment, right? And so, uh, so that doesn't work, right? Then, then the shields go up and all that, and we, we get the lawyers involved. So we approach it as a collaborative. It, you still, you OEM still own that environment. We just want to be in it. We want to use it. We want to have access to it through acquisition. And then we want to be able to access it as we go into sustainment and, and, 
be able to use the environment to sustain our own ships and airplanes and, and weapon systems. We don't want to go try to you know resell yourself in the you know international market or anything, but we want we want to be able to at least use that data environment so our own sailors and our own Marines could sustain the, the equipment we've given them. And actually, at the, at the company's presidents and and, uh, and the CEO level, they're all on board with that. Their concern is if third party gets a hold of it, and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So they don't really have a problem, at least what they're telling us, with you sailors, Marines, you guys want to use it or go in naval shipyards or aviation depots, that's fine. It's it's the third parties we worry about. Part of the challenge of crafting those new authorities is that they'll need to be flexible enough to accommodate the types of data access the Navy might need for a particular system, whether it be an aircraft, a ship, or an electronic warfare system. In any event, Stephanie says the Navy doesn't envision a one-size-fits-all approach to accessing contractors' digital engineering environments and will likely negotiate over each one. I want industry to come back and say and, and prove to us where there is something that, yep, you can't have that government, but why can't I have it? What, what is it that's you know, the special sauce? What is really in there as opposed to I just stamped everything proprietary, you can't touch anything. So get a dialogue going is the key, right? This is what we want to do, this is what you want to do. Let's have that dialogue. So it will be, if not contract-specific, probably company-specific and domain-specific. The Navy certainly isn't alone in wanting to work with contractors on digital engineering. The Air Force, for example, envisions a future when digital engineering has enough fidelity that it's able to award contracts for big systems on the basis of digital models, not necessarily physical prototypes. But that service is approaching the problem from the other direction, giving companies access to a government-operated digital engineering environment rather than asking for access to the contractors. And the Defense Department thinks there's promise in the digital engineering approach the Air Force has taken on systems like its ground-based strategic deterrence program. Stacy Cummings, the acting undersecretary for acquisition and sustainment, says it helped set the program up with data rights it'll need over its entire life cycle. Emerging threats in the challenging socio-technical operating environment require a fundamental change to the way we develop and acquire weapon systems and their supporting technologies. DOD is committed to digital engineering efforts to drive agility and more informed acquisition decision-making. In addition to modernizing the department's digital engineering capabilities, To include fully digital programs, we are in critical need of standards that will enable collaboration. Cummings says digitizing the acquisition lifecycle could be especially helpful in areas like developmental and operational testing, especially with regard to software. The Congress has uh, encouraged us to, as much as possible, reduce the timeline for how quickly we're releasing software. We simply can't keep up the pace of the demand from our user if we have a very serial process of testing, you know, contractor-led testing, then developmental testing, then operational testing. We also can't continue to look at testing as being something that is only done in a physical environment. And so for software, what we're encouraging is program managers to work with their developmental testing and operational testing team to maximize automated testing. You validate that your automation is valid, which creates the evidence for the testers to say that the product is meeting Uh, requirements, whether those requirements are cyber in nature, operational in nature, and both the developmental test policy leaders as well as the operational test policy leaders are committed to create policy, but also to implement policy that encourages and um, 
and allows us to take advantage of technology for automated testing and integrated testing. Jared Serbu, Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Check out Jared's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, you think about a pandemic, for example, that has uh, placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is to sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, and the idea that we don't have the human interaction uh, which I think is very important when you think about the I- empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America, and certainly within me, uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to be uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here, and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina, uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a little rural school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream. 
which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to to fight for change. And that was that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there have been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, 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 the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call Equality of Opportunity Initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life? And what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I can't say that I had, I had just one. But I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most. And that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., and there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream, which we often define and think of his big, I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges, is seeing a forest despite the trees, is seeing an opportunity despite the barriers, and that that attribute I think is one that that I embody. I mean, I, I I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and the the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, 
who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet, or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce. And I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular common everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high-level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me, if there was some advice and counsel I could give, is to continue to do your work. But, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.